Section 18 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 18 George Peabody. Part 2. The outdoor work of tramping Maryland and Virginia highways had put the glow of high health on the cheek of George Peabody. He was big in body, manly, intelligent, and could meet men on the basis of equality. If I were president of a college, I would certainly have a chair devoted to psychic mixability, or charm of manner. Ponderosity, profundity, and insipidity may have their place, but the man with charm of manner keeps his capital active. His soul is fluid. I have never been in possession of enough of this social radium to analyze it, but I know it has the power of dissolving opposition and melting human hearts. But so delicate and elusive is it that when used for a purely selfish purpose, it evaporates into thin air, and the erstwhile possessor is left with only the mask of beauty and the husk of a personality. George Peabody had charm of manner from his nineteenth year to the day of his death. Colonel Forney crossed the Atlantic with him when Peabody was in his seventy-first year, and here is what Forney says. I sat on one side of the cabin, and he on the other. He was reading from a book, which he finally merely held in his hands as he sat idly dreaming. I was melted into tears by the sight of his Jove-like head framed against the window. His face and features beamed with high and noble intellect, and his eyes looked forth in divine love. If ever soul revealed itself in the face, it was here. He was the very king of men, and I did not at all wonder that in the past people had worked the apotheosis such as he. The firm of Riggs and Peabody prospered. It outgrew its quarters in old Congress Hall in Georgetown, and ran over into a house next door, which it preempted. Moreover, it was apparent by this time that neither Georgetown nor Washington would ever be the commercial metropolis of America. The city of Baltimore had special harbor advantages that Washington did not have. The ships touched there according to natural law. And when Riggs and Peabody found themselves carting consignments to Baltimore in order to make shipment to Savannah and Charleston, they knew the die was cast. They packed up and moved to Baltimore. This was in the year 1815. In order to do business, you had better go where business is being done. Trade follows the lines of least resistance. The wholesale dealer saw the value of honesty as a business asset, long before the retailer made the same unique discovery. Dr. Algernon S. Crapsey says that truth is a brand new virtue, and the clergy are not quite sure about it yet. To hold his trade, the jobber found he had to be on the dead level. He had to consider himself the attorney for his client. Peabody was a merchant by instinct. He had good taste, and he had a prophetic instinct as to what the people wanted. Instead of buying his supplies in Newburyport, Boston, and New York, he now established relations with London, direct. And London was then the commercial center of the world, the arbiter of fashion, the molder of form, the home of finance, frenzied and otherwise. Riggs and Peabody shipped American cotton to London, and received in return the manufactured production in its manifold forms. 
In 1829, Riggs withdrew from the firm, retaining a certain financial interest merely, and Peabody forged to the front alone as a financier. For many years, Peabody dealt largely with Robert Owen, and thus there grew up a close and lasting friendship between these very able men. Both were scouts for civilization. No doubt they influenced each other for good. We find them working out a new policy in business, the policy of reciprocity, instead of exploitation. Robert Owen always had almost unlimited credit, for he prized his word as the immediate jewel of his soul. It was exactly the same with Peabody. In 1827, Peabody visited England. He was then 32 years old. The merchants from whom he bought discovered a surprising thing when they met Peabody. He was not the bounding, bragging, bustling, hustling American. He hustled, of course, but not visibly nor offensively. He had the appearance of a man who had all the time there was. He was moderate in voice and gentle in manner, and we hear of a London banker paying him the somewhat ambiguous compliment of saying, Well, you know, he is a perfect gentleman. He does not seem like an American at all, you know. Peabody had the rare gift of never defeating his ends through haste and anxiety. The second trip Peabody made to London was in 1835, and it was on a very delicate and important errand. The state of Maryland was in sore financial distress. She had issued bonds, and these were coming due. Certain southern states had repudiated their debts, and it looked as if Maryland was going to default. Peabody issued an open letter calling on the citizens of Maryland to preserve their commercial honor. The state bonds were held mostly in New York and Philadelphia, and these were rival cities. Baltimore was to be taboo. Steve Gerard had loaned money to Maryland, and in 1829 had declined to renew, and this, some said, had led to the stringency, which reached its height in 1835. Then it was that the state of Maryland empowered George Peabody to go to London and negotiate a loan. The initiative was his own. He went to London and floated a loan of $8 million. Robert Owen said that Peabody borrowed the money on his face. He invited a dozen London bankers to a dinner, and when the cloth was removed, he explained the matter in such a lucid way that the money-bags loosened their strings and did his bidding without parley. Peabody sailed back to Baltimore with the gold coin. Another case of charm of manner. Peabody knew the loan was a good thing to both borrower and lender, and the man who knows what he is going to do with money, and when and how he is going to pay it back, is never at a loss for funds. In 1893, Andrew Carnegie called upon the banks of Pittsburgh for a million-dollar loan. The bankers said, Why, Mr. Carnegie, this is unprecedented. The reply was, Well, I am a man who does unprecedented things. If you believe that I know what I am doing, get this money together for me. Life is too short for apologies. I'll be back in an hour. Three of the bankers coughed, one sneezed, but they got the money and had it ready when Andy called in an hour. In this transaction, Andy held the whip hand. The Carnegie Mills were already owing the Pittsburgh banks a tidy million or so, and they were compelled to uphold and support the credit of their clients, or run the risk of having smokestacks fall about their ears. It was so, in degree, with Peabody and the London bankers. A considerable portion of Maryland's old bond issue had been hypothecated by the Philadelphia and New York bankers with merchants in London. It was now Peabody's cue to show London that she must protect her own. His gracious presence and his logic save the day. It is a great man who can flick a fly off the off-leader's ear when occasion demands. 
as a commission for securing the London loan, the state of Maryland gave Peabody a check for $60,000. He endorsed the check, presented to the state of Maryland with the best wishes of G. Peabody, and gave it back. Peabody's success with Threadneedle Street tapped for him a reservoir of power. To bring Great Britain and America into closer financial and industrial relationship now became his life work. In 1835, he moved his principal office to London. This was for the purpose of facilitating the shipment of English goods to America. The English manufacturers were afraid to sell to American merchants. Capital is timid, said Adam Smith, the truth of which many of us can attest. Peabody knew the trade of America, and his business now was to make advances to English jobbers on shipments going to the States. Thus did he lubricate the wheels of trade. London bankers had been trying to show English manufacturers that trading with the American colonies was very risky, insomuch as these colonies were rebels, and entertained a hate and jealousy toward the mother country which might manifest itself in repudiation almost any time. This fanning of old embers was to keep up the rate of discount. The postage on a letter carried from England to America, or America to England, was twenty-five cents when Peabody first went to England. He saw the rate reduced to ten cents, and this largely through his own efforts. Now we send a letter to Great Britain for two cents, or as cheaply as a letter can be sent from New York City to Yonkers. Through the influence of George Peabody, more than any other man of his time, the two great countries grew to understand each other. The business of Peabody was to maintain the credit of America. To this end, he made advances on shipments to the States. Where brokers had formerly charged ten percent, he took five. And moreover, where he knew the American importer, he advanced to the full amount of the invoice. He turned his money over four times a year, and thus got an interest on it of twenty percent. His losses averaged only one-half of one percent. When he wanted funds, he found no difficulty in borrowing at a low rate of interest on his own paper. The business was simple, easy, and when once started, yielded an income to Peabody of from 300000 to half a million dollars a year. And no one was more surprised than George Peabody himself, who had once worked for a certain Sylvester Proctor of Danvers for four years, and at the end of that time had been paid five dollars and given a suit of clothes. Peabody lived and died a bachelor. Bachelors are of two kinds. There is the rara avis other sort, and the common variety, known as the bachelorum vulgaris. The latter variety may always be recognized by his proclivity to trespass on the preserve of the Shah of Persia, thus laying the candidate open to a suit for the collection of royalties. Besides that, the bachelorum vulgaris is apt to fall into the poison ivy, lose his hair, teeth, charm, and digestion, and die at the top. The other sort, is wedded to his work, for man is a molecule in the mass and must be wedded to something. To be wedded to your work is to live long and well. For a man to wed a woman who has no interest in his work, and thus live his life in an orbit outside of hers, often calls the party to oscillate into the course followed by the Bachelor and Bulgaris and the Honorable Shaw, known as the Devil and the Deep Sea, and thus he completes the circle, revealing the law of antithesis, that the opposites of things are alike. The ideal condition is to be a bigamist and wed a woman and your work at the same time. To wed a woman and be weaned from your work is a tragedy. To wed your work and eliminate the women may spell success. If compelled to choose, be loyal to your work. As specimens of those who got along fairly well without either a feminine helpmate or a sinker, I give you Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Titian, Sir Isaac Newton, Herbert Spencer, 
and George Peabody. George Peabody was a true apostolic predecessor of Harry G. Selfridge of Chicago and the Round World, who has inaugurated American manufacturing methods in London, selling to the swells of Piccadilly the smart suits created by Steinblock. Unlike most men of wealth and position, Peabody never assumed unusual importance nor demanded favors. In London, where he lived for thirty years, he resided in simple apartments, with no use for a valet nor the genus flunky. He was grateful to servants, courteous to porters, thankful to everybody, always patient, never complaining of inattention. He grew to be a favorite among the bus men who came to know him and sought to do him honor. The poor of London blessed him as he walked by, with reasons, probably, not wholly disinterested. He used no tobacco, never touched spiritous liquors, and at banquets usually partook of but a single dish. His first great gift was three million pounds to erect model tenements for the poor of London. The Peabody Apartments occupy two squares in Islington and are worth a visit today, although they were built about 1850. The intent was to supply a home for working people that was sanitary, wholesome, and complete, at a rental of exact cost. Peabody expected that his example would be imitated by the rich men of the nobility, and that squalor and indigence would soon become things of the past. Alas, the Peabody apartments accommodate only about a thousand people, and half a million or more of human beings live in abasing poverty and misery in London today. Except in a few instances, the nobility of London are devoid of the philanthropic spirit. In New York, the Mills hotels are yet curiosities, and the model tenements exist mostly on paper. Trinity Church, with its millions, draws an income today from property of a type which Peabody prophesied would not exist in the year 1900. One thing which Peabody did not bank on was the indifference of the poor to their surroundings, and the inherent taste for strong drink. He thought that if the rich would come to the rescue, the poor would welcome the new regime and be grateful. The truth seems to be that the poor must help themselves, and that beautiful as philanthropy is, it is mostly for the philanthropist. The poor must be educated to secrete their surroundings, otherwise if you supply them a palace, they will transform it into a slum tomorrow. The sole object of philanthropy, said Story the sculptor, is to model a face like George Peabody's. When the news reached America of what George Peabody, the American, was doing for London, there were many unkind remarks about his having forsaken his native land. To equalize matters, Peabody then gave three million dollars, just what he had given to London, for the cause of education in the southern states. This money was used to establish schoolhouses. Wherever a town raised $500 for a school, Peabody would give a like sum. A million dollars of the Peabody Fund was finally used for a normal school at Nashville. The investment has proved a wise and beneficent one. He next gave a million and a half dollars to found the Peabody Institute of Baltimore. That this gift fired the heart of Peter Cooper to do a similar work, and if possible a better work, there is no doubt. At the first World's Fair held in London in 1851, Peabody gave $15,000 toward the exhibition of American inventions, the chief of which, at this time, were the McCormick Reaper, Eli Whitney's Cotton Gin, and Colt's Revolver. Peabody backed Dr. Kane with a gift of $20,000 in his search for Franklin. He established various libraries, and gave a quarter of a million dollars to his native town for a Peabody Institute. Danvers can yet be found on the map, but Peabody is a place of pilgrimage for those who reverence that American invention, a new virtue, the art of giving wisely. Joshua Bates, through whose generosity Boston secured her free library, was an agent of Peabody's, and afterwards his partner. 
Later, Bates became a member of the House of Bering Brothers, and carried on a business similar to that of George Peabody. There is no doubt that Bates got his philanthropic impulse from Peabody. In 1856, Peabody visited his native town of Danvers, after an absence of more than forty years. They were great doings, in which all the schoolchildren, as well as the governor of the state, had a part. At Washington, Peabody was the guest of the president. The House of Representatives and the Senate adjourned their regular business to do him honor, and he made an address to them. The judges of the Supreme Court invited him to sit on the bench when he entered their chamber. For twenty years he was America's unofficial chief representative in London, no matter who was counsel or who ambassador. Every year, on July 4th, he gave a dinner to the principal Americans who happened to be in London. To be invited to this dinner was an event. Peabody himself always presided, and there was considerable oratory, sometimes of the brand known as Southwestern, which Peabody tolerated with gentle smiles. On one occasion, however, things did not go smoothly. Daniel Sickles was counsel to London, and James Buchanan, afterwards our punkish president, was ambassador. Sickles was a good man, but a fire-eater, and a gentleman of market jingo proclivities. Sickles had asked that Buchanan preside, in which case Buchanan was to call on Sickles for the first toast, and this toast was to be the President of the United States. At the same time, Sickles intended to give the British lion's tail a few gratuitous twists. Peabody declined to accede to Sickles' wish, but he himself presided, and offered the first to the Queen of England. Thereupon Sickles walked out with needless clatter, and Buchanan sat glued to his seat. The affair came near being an international episode. Peabody was always an American, and better, he was a citizen of the world. He loved America, but when on English soil, really guest of England, he gave the Queen the place of honor. This seems to us proper and right, and at this distance we smile at the whole transaction, but we are glad that Peabody, who paid for the dinner, had his way as to the oratorical guff. The Queen offered Peabody a knighthood, but he declined, saying, If Her Majesty write me a personal letter endorsing my desire to help the poor of London, I will be more than delighted. Victoria then wrote the letter, and she also had a picture of herself painted in miniature and gave it to him. The letter and portrait are now in the Peabody Institute at Peabody, Massachusetts. When Peabody died in 1869, Queen Victoria ordered that his body be placed in Westminster Abbey. The Queen, in person, attended the funeral, the flags on Parliament House were lowered to half-mast, and the body was attended to Westminster Abbey by the Royal Guard. Gladstone was one of the pallbearers. Later, it was discovered that Peabody had devised in his will that his body should rest by the side of his father and mother in Harmony Grove, the village cemetery at Denver's, and in a spot over which his boyish feet had trod. The body was then removed from the Abbey and placed on board the British man-of-war Monarch, in the presence of the Prime Minister, the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, and many distinguished citizens. The monarch was conveyed to America by a French and an American gunboat. No such honors were ever before paid to the memory of a simple American citizen. Well did the Reverend Newman Hall say, in his funeral oration, George Peabody waved a war against want and woe. He created homes, he never desolated one. He sided with the friendless and the houseless, and his life was guided by a law of love which none could ever wish to repeal. His was the task of cementing the hearts of Britain and America, pointing both to their duty to God and to mankind. End of section 18. Recording by Todd.